This is from verse 15. If you, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. The words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. Well, hey, we are going to um, continue our Upper Room series this morning. I'm going to pray for us, so please join me as we humbly sit under God's Word this morning. Father, we thank You that You're a God who speaks. We thank You that You're a God who has revealed Yourself to us. And we thank You for Your promise, Jesus, that You made that You will never leave us alone. I thank you for the gift of your spirit. Father, we thank you that you are present right now. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would please illuminate the truth of your word to us this morning. Show us what it means to be people who encounter our God on your terms, not on ours. Show us what it means to be people who would love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. God, we pray that you would pour your spirit out on us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' strong name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Kanye West. Yeezy. Yee. Whatever you want to call him. However you see Kanye and whatever your preference is, I don't really care because he's got a zinger line that I want to quote to you this morning. There's a lyric in one of his songs called Hands On. And um, it, as I listened to the song, it really struck me that it said something quite profound about Christianity. And it's actually an accusation that is leveled against him, probably from the Christian bubble. But in the song, he says this. We, and I don't know who we is, probably him and his, 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 his entourage. We get called halfway believers, only halfway read Ephesians. 
Now, as I read that line, I was like, well, actually, if Kanye has had a genuine conversion, there's a little window into the fact that he understands something about the Bible. Because if you're, if you're not familiar with the book of Ephesians, Ephesians is divided very neatly into two halves. Chapters 1 to 3 in the book of Ephesians is all about what God has done. It's about the gospel. It's about the fact that He has redeemed us, that He has chosen us, that He has sealed us with His Spirit. It's the fact that He has called those who were once foreigners, aliens, and made us citizens. It's about the fact that God has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility and made two people one. It's all about what God has done. And then you get to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, and it's this distinct pivot, this hinge in the book. And chapter 4, all the way to the end of chapter 6, is about what we do in response. And so for someone to be accused of only half reading Ephesians is to say that you've only really read the bit about what God has done and you're not really focused on what you should do in response, how your life should change. You're intellectually assenting to some truths about Jesus, but it's not really impacting your Monday. That's the accusation, right? And it seems to me that Christianity can often fall into that trap of dualism, of the sacred-secular divide, that Sundays are the days that we do our God stuff and then Monday to Friday we do our secular work stuff and there's no integration between the two. It's the problem with a, a version of Christianity that just intellectually assents, you know, reduces our faith to just a, a mental assent to a bunch of propositions about Jesus. Like we know about Jesus, or it's a problem within a Christianity that reduces the Christian life to an emotional experience, a feeling, and a problem with Christianity that says, Christianity is not about what you do. Now, now there's some truth to that, isn't there? Of course, the cross is not about what we do. It's all about what Jesus has done but when we just focus on the done bit and not focus on the do bit we fall into error and so what i want to help us help you see this morning is that the way that jesus made disciples was not to default to either of those mistakes you know christians fall off either side of the the narrow ledge to those errors, but Jesus did something profoundly different. And the way I want to do that is I, I want to offer you a matrix. So all of the consultants in the room and all the business people like, you either love this or hate this, right? Because every consultant was to give you a matrix. But anyway, here is my matrix. It's called the invitation and challenge matrix, or we could call it grace and response, right? So here, is it on the screen there behind me? Oh, yes. Great. You're going to have to work with the screen. All right. Just another example of why the pastor should be doing what the pastor is good at and not other things. Uh, this, this matrix here works across two planes. The horizontal plane is the plane of challenge. Right. So low challenge on this side, high challenge on this side. The vertical plane is invitation. High invitation up the top, low invitation down the bottom. Your four quadrants in, in this matrix are this. Your top left-hand corner is where there is high invitation and low challenge. High invitation, low challenge, and that results in cozy, consumeristic culture. It's called the chaplaincy quadrant, where we just make people feel good. We give them heaps of grace, but we never really challenge them. 
below the challenge line there on the high, high, uh, high invitation, sorry, low invitation, low challenge quadrant there, this bottom corner, we have the apathetic culture. There's no invitation. There's no particular challenge to change or grow or stretch yourself. There's no invitation into deep relationship. There's no invitation to live out your identity. It is the apathetic culture and it leads to people feeling completely bored. On this side of the graph, we have the stressful quadrant. That is where there is high challenge, but very low invitation, low grace, low relationship, but just lots of confrontation and challenge. And that leads to stress, discouragement and burnout. And what I want you to see this morning is the way that Jesus, the master disciple maker, the way that Jesus went about making disciples was in this top quadrant here, the discipleship quadrant. And that is where there is both high invitation, invitation into relationship, invitation into intimacy, an invitation to live out your identity and with it challenge to grow, to step out in faith, to stretch yourself. And that is the empowering culture. And so I'm going to use that framework this morning and I'm going to lay it on top of John 14, help you see that this is how Jesus makes disciples with high invitation and high challenge. And I want you to see this uh, in a, that verse, f- first verse that was read out for us in John chapter 14, verse 15. It says this, If you love me, keep my commands. If you love me, invitation, there's an invitation to relationship. There is an invitation to experience the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then keep my commandments. Live in a specific way. Do the things that I have been doing. Invitation and challenge. Now, you've got to remember, in the context of the upper room, Jesus is calling together his select few. They've moved out of the hustle of the streets of Jerusalem into the quietness of the upper room. And Jesus is beginning to prepare his disciples for their world-changing mission to follow him and to alert everyone to the universal reign of God through Christ. That is what he's about to commission them to fill them with the Spirit for. And as he does that, the very first thing that Jesus wants to do is remind his disciples of what? His love for them. He reminds them that he loves them. And then he gives them a really clear demonstration of that love by washing their feet. And then he says, now you love each other in this way. And then as we get to this juncture in chapter 14, he will say, and you've got to love me. This is the first time that Jesus in the entire gospel of John says, now it's time for you to love me. All of it has been, I love you. This is how deep my love is for you. You love one another. Now he's saying, now part of this this deal is you've got to love me. Invitation and challenge. And here's my headline for this message. Genuine, spirit-filled discipleship of Jesus, apprenticeship to Jesus is about lives that are being formed into the likeness of Jesus. That is the result of the indwelling of the Spirit in our lives. The outflow of that identity is that we will live lives of obedience to Jesus. Genuine Spirit-filled Christianity is about lives that are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. So firstly, let's start with invitation. 
invitation. Jesus is inviting his disciples. He's inviting you into intimate relationship with the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Have a look at what it says in verse 16. He says, Ask, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. Who is he? Who is this other advocate who's coming? He is the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. And because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father and that you are in me and that I am in you. You remember last week, uh, or the last couple of weeks rather, Jesus has said to his disciples, after saying to them all the way in the beginning of John's gospel, come follow me. Then he says to them in chapter 13, you can't follow me anymore. Where I am going, you cannot follow. And Peter's like, what do you mean? I'll follow you. Like there is nowhere. I will die for you, Jesus. And Jesus says to him, what? In fact, you won't die for me. You'll deny me. And then in chapter 14, as James reminded us last week, Jesus says, I'm going and I'm going to prepare a place for you. My father's house are in many rooms. And Thomas is like, but, but how do we know the way? And you get this sense here in this section of John's Gospels. The disciples are anxious. They're worried. They're freaking out about his imminent departure because they have literally laid everything on the line to follow him. And now he's saying that he's going to leave them alone. He's going. He's leaving. They're concerned. They're worried. They're stressed. In the first century, a disciple who had lost their rabbi was literally called an orphan, fatherless. A disciple who no longer had a rabbi to apprentice under, to follow, was called an orphan. And there is this beautiful promise here from Jesus in verse 18, because he says to the disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. Yes, I'm going. Yes, I'm leaving, but I will not leave you as orphans. I am not abandoning you because I will send you the one that I have promised, the advocate, and he will be my presence with you. And you'll notice there in verse 16, he says, I will give you another advocate, another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. Now that, that word advocate is translated in all sorts of different ways depending on what translation you read. Sometimes it's translated as helper. Other times it's translated as comforter. Other times it is uh, encourager or advocate or legal advocate. And all of them are probably true. The problem is we just don't have one single English word that captures the multifaceted richness of this word. Jesus is sending, I will, I will send you another one to help, to encourage, to stand alongside you, to comfort you, to be with you forever. And you'll notice also that it says there, I will send you another advocate, implying that Jesus himself was the first advocate. There is another advocate coming who will continue the ministry of Jesus after he departs. I don't know if you noticed all of the connections there between what Jesus is saying. In, in verses 16 and 17, he's saying, He will come. 
I will send you another advocate. And then in verse 18, he says, I will come. You're like, who is it, Jesus? Is it you? Is it the other advocate? I'm, I'm confused. And, and as we get to this point, we realize that we are wading into the deep, rich, mysterious, beautiful doctrine of the Trinity, which we don't have time to unpack this morning, maybe another day. But Jesus is sending his comforter, his aid, his helper, his encourager to be with them. And you'll notice it says there that he will be both with you, fellowshipping, sharing, and in you, indwelling, all of the richness of the temple language of God coming to dwell in the midst of his people in the temple. And here Jesus is promising that I will come and tabernacle and dwell in you. I will be with you. I'll be in you. And I will be with you forever. Verse 16. Not just on your best days. Not even in the days when you're experiencing the valley of the shadow of death, I will be with you always, forever. That means tomorrow. Jesus promises to be with us. You know, one of the things that um, became really obvious a number of years ago at my previous church, we surveyed the entire church and um, we asked the question, do you believe that the Holy Spirit is a person? And about 43% of people said yes. And the rest said he was a force, like, you know, Star Wars. And it's, it's kind of sad because Star Wars seems to be shaping our imagination about the doctrine of the Trinity more than the Scriptures do because everything that is said about the Spirit here in these verses communicate to us that He is a person, not an it. The Spirit of God, He is not an impersonal force. He is divine alongside the Father and the Son sent from the Father at the Son's request to indwell and be with us. He is another advocate and He does all of the things that only a person can do. You can grieve the Spirit of God. You can't grieve an impersonal force. He encourages. In fact, it says here that He will lead you into truth. He will teach us. The Spirit of God is not an impersonal force. He is a He. And as the other advocate, the second advocate comes to continue the ministry of Jesus, it results in this, verse 27. Peace I will leave you. My peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Peace. That's the result of the presence of God in our lives. Peace, not fear, not trouble, but peace. I, I, I only realized this a number of years ago, but throughout the entire scriptures, there is this theme. Right? You can trace it through the Old Testament. It's there in the New Testament. But there is this theme about not fearing and God being present. It's everywhere. And once you notice it, it's like, oh, oh how did I miss this before? I remember uh, reading you know, the narrative of Joshua, he's about to go in and conquer the promised land. And what does God say to him? He says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Why? Because God promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That theme is everywhere. And it is the presence of God that drives fear out of our lives and replaces it with a deep sense of peace, of knowing that God is in control. And I wonder 
in this season where we've been provided with so much uncertainty, with so much fear, with so much trouble, with so much anxiety, if we cared to pay attention to God, if we spent less time refreshing our news feeds and worrying about what was happening in our worlds and more time attuning our spirit to the presence of God with us, remembering His promise, enjoying the fact that He is with us and in us, what difference that would make. See, the invitation for the disciples is to experience intimate relationship with our Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Don Carson, who is probably one of the most preeminent New Testament scholars in the world and alive, there's often the best are dead guys, but he's still alive, believe it or not. He's, he's getting old. But he says this about the necessity of us to understand God's presence with us. He says this, Nevertheless, in our insistence on truth, And on the central historical realities of faith. Yes, that is the foundation for us, right? Yes, yes, yes. But we must not minimize the momentous promise of experiential fellowship with God. This intimacy, as we shall see, turns on our obedience, but is no less real for that. We modern Christians badly need a deepening consciousness of God's sacred presence in us. As much as we need moral renewal, historical awareness, and biblical and theological acuity, we desperately need a growing awareness of the presence of God in us, with us, comforting, encouraging. I've got to tell you, when we get that reality, it changes so much of how we view our world, our moment, our times. You know, if you were to jump in a time machine and go back in time and introduce yourself to an old covenant Jew and tell them that by the blood of Jesus, that you have access to the very throne room of grace without animal sacrifice, without necessity of a high priest, because you have one and his name is Jesus and he ushers you into the presence of God and he pours out his spirit to dwell in you and you become a temple of the Holy Spirit, they would literally freak out. They would. We, we need to capture this truth and begin to enjoy the presence of God, attune ourselves to his presence with us. That is the invitation of Jesus. As his disciples are stressed, concerned, worried, anxious about his departure and what is going to happen after this thing that he is talking about, his promise and reminder to them You shall not be spiritual orphans. I'm with you. Don't stress out. Don't freak out. What a rich invitation. But you remember, Jesus doesn't just leave us in the high invitation, low challenge quadrant, because that leads to cozy, comfortable, apathetic Christianity. Jesus challenges his disciples, his followers. And the challenge is this. You need to love with your obedience. I don't know if you saw that just popping up so many times as Keith read the passage out for us. Have a look at this. Chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Or verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love them and 
show myself to them. Or down to verse 23, Jesus replied, If anyone who loves me will obey my teaching, my Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teachings. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. You got to remember for Jesus, love is far more than a feeling. It's certainly not less. Don't misunderstand me. It is not less than loving God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, with every fiber of your emotional capacity. It's not less than that, but it is absolutely more than just a feeling. Somehow we've believed this notion that we can love Jesus, but we don't really have to listen to what he says. We can love Jesus on Sundays and come to church and stretch our arms out in heartfelt worship. And then on Monday, we walk in a lack of integrity and dishonesty and greed, selfishness and pride. I don't know where we've got this understanding that we can love Jesus with our feelings, but not our actions. That is a tearing apart of the human capacity, if I've ever heard it. Obedience is not an optional extra in the Christian life. That is not for the super spiro Christians, right? It is, it is for everyone. It is everyday, ordinary discipleship and apprenticeship to Jesus is about loving union with Jesus flowing out into obedience in our lives. It's about the type of Christian who's not just half-read Ephesians, but the whole thing. Love for Jesus is intensely practical. It's intensely practical. It looked like the Savior of the world, uncloaking himself, putting a towel around his waist, getting on his knees and washing the dirty feet of his disciples. It's the type of action that took him to Golgotha, where he was stripped naked, hung out to die, Blood poured out for our forgiveness. It, that's love for Jesus. It's practical. It's practical. It's demonstrated on the outside. It's seen. It's visible. When John wrote, uh, he, he, he wrote the gospel. He also wrote a couple of letters as well, the little Johns, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And in it, in, in John 1 John 2, 3 to 6, it's not going to be on the slides for you, but, but basically he says, your love for God and your love for each other, that is how you know. If you're looking for a, a visible, tangible evidence of the fact that you've received the Spirit, that you're a genuine follower and disciple of Jesus, it's by your love. That's how you're going to know. Love will be the measure of the maturity of the Christian faith, to quote another lead pastor of Southwest. Shout out. You know when you um, fall in love? I hope, I hope you've experienced that. And no one needs to tell you to do certain things. Uh, no one needs to tell you to give your significant other your attention and time. Uh, it's not like you've got to get out the checklist and be like, hmm, flowers, attention, say some nice things. You know, it's like it just 
it gushes out of you because that is love, right? Love doesn't just stay inside of us. It's demonstrated on the outside. Leslie Newbingham, the great English missiologist, says this, the substance of indwelling is love made actual in obedience. The substance of indwelling of the Spirit of God is love made actual in obedience. And it's one of the reasons why the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit is because His work in us is to make us holy, more like Christ. Obedience. Newbigin says that loving without obedience is pure sentimentalism. It's just emotionalism. Obedience without love is slavery. But we need both. It is loving union with Jesus that works itself out in obedience, a life of apprenticeship to Him. You know, one of the things that um, I've often heard is that, um, you know, the, the gifts of the Spirit are the essential mark of the presence of the Spirit in someone's life. Now, don't get me wrong. The gifts are essential. They're important, right? Paul spends a lot of time talking about the gifts. But the primary foundational mark of the presence of the Spirit in a believer's life is the fruit of the Spirit. It's Galatians 5. That's why we say things like here at Anchor that we value giftedness over godliness. We value godliness over giftedness. And we value giftedness quite highly. We value godliness over giftedness and we value giftedness quite highly. The other thing I want to say about this is the order is really essential. Right? For those of you in the room this morning who wouldn't necessarily say, yes, I'm a Christian, I believe this stuff, the order is essential. What I'm not saying is that you obey Jesus in order to earn His love for you. Right? You do the right things, you tick the boxes, and then God will love you. Right? That's, that is obedience minus love. That's slavery, that's religion, and that is not the way of Jesus at all. The order is essential. This is, this is God's love taking hold in our hearts, capturing our f- affections and erupting out of us in a life of obedient response. The order is essential. And so I wonder if you're here this morning, you find yourself saying, you know what? Yes, I, I love Jesus. Do you love Jesus with all your heart? Yes, I, lo- I love Jesus with all my heart. Do you love him with all your strength? Yes. What about your soul? Yes, I love him. How are you going at that? On Monday morning. Like, What does it look like for all of the areas of your life? Not just the convenient, nice ones. Not just the bits that people see. What about the bits that people don't see? Do we fall into the trap of saying... I love Jesus, but I'm just not really listening to him over here. He doesn't call us to perfect obedience. And he is the only one who walks in perfect obedience. But he does call us into a life of holy obedience and following him. Jesus is the master discipler. He is not willing to leave us in the safe, cozy, comfortable, apathetic zone. 
And I think probably that's where a vast majority of the Western church sits. One of the reasons that we need the persecuted church is because we need their example and model of faith. Because for them, the cost of discipleship is often everything. It's their lives, it's their livelihood, their work, their family, their career. Perhaps they have to flee their country. Perhaps they have to worship in secret in an underground church. The example of the persecuted church is so desperately needed by the Western church because they live in the discipling quadrant. Interestingly, when in Acts chapter 4, when the, when the church experiences persecution, when Peter and John are thrown into prison and the disciples are together praying and this persecution is beginning to bubble up against them, what do they pray? They say, Lord, notice the threats that are coming against us and please take them away. They don't pray that. They say, God, would you notice these threats and give us courage to speak the good news nonetheless? Challenge. I think what is desperately needed in our city, in our church, and, and our church, right, Anchor Church, is the type of faith that walks obediently before Jesus, the, the type of faith that doesn't just read the half, first half of Ephesians and ignores the second half. The type of faith that is red hot for Jesus and that pours out into the actions of our lives. The type of Christians who would walk the walk and not just talk the talk on Sundays. The type of Christians whose behaviors match the beliefs that are there in their lives. And I think the Western church desperately needs an awakening to that reality. And that happens, according to Jesus, as we're aware of the power of the Spirit of God, the presence of Jesus in our lives, flowing out of us in acts of everyday obedience. And so my challenge to you this morning, I hope you, this room's quiet, right? One of the things that I think I've realized is that I was pretty comfortable in the cozy, apathetic space. One of, one of the things that we have tried to do here at Anchor is create a church community that has high grace. We want people to come in here and not feel judged. We want, we want if, if you're in the room and you're not a believer, we hope that you feel welcome, safe, appreciated here. We're not about to judge you for your lifestyle because you don't believe in Jesus. The downside of a high grace culture is that we can subconsciously begin to think that it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter how people live. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't, it's grace, 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 grace. And, and I think I've had this realization that in our attempt to try and be a high grace church, sometimes we've camped out in the apathetic zone. And so I want to bring some challenge. I want to bring some challenge back because Jesus never wants to leave us in the apathetic, safe, cozy, comfortable space. He, challenged, he invites us into deep, intimate relationship. He invites us to understand and live out this new identity that He's given us. And then He challenges us to grow. 
And that's where I want our church to be, in that space, in that zone, the discipleship zone, the empowerment zone. But let's not get confused that no one can challenge me. If, if someone challenges me, they don't love me, they don't care about me. In fact, when someone challenges you, perhaps that is the evidence that they do care, that they do love, and that they care more about your progress and journey in faith with Christ than they do about the fear of like this relationship being a little bit awkward. Challenge. I think we need it. We need the example of the persecuted church. We need to be the type of disciples who will live in that space. But one of the realities of the gospel is the, the beautiful truth that when we do fall short, when we do make mistakes, when we don't live up, when we aren't walking in obedience, when we find that there are corners of our life that we aren't willing to open the door to the Spirit's illuminating light, when we run from the challenge that Jesus has to offer us, we have the body and blood of Jesus poured out for our forgiveness.